With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. If you love chilling mysteries, unsolved cases, and a touch of mom-style humor, Moms and Mysteries is the podcast you've been searching for. Hey guys, I'm Mandy. And I'm Melissa. Join us every Tuesday for Moms and Mysteries, your gateway to gripping, well-researched true crime stories. Each week, we deep dive into a variety of mind-boggling cases as we shed light on everything from heists to whodunits. We're your go-to podcast for mysteries with a motherly touch. Subscribe now to Moms and Mysteries wherever you get your podcasts. Hear that jingle jingle? It could be Kris Kringle. Or a home invader coming down the chimney. A jilted lover flashing a knife under the mistletoe. Or a disgruntled co-worker at the office Christmas party lacing the punch with arsenic. It's disgusting. Jen and Cam, the hosts of our true crime podcast, are always on Santa's nice list. But this holiday season, they're filling your stockings with 12 nightmarish crimes committed by the lowest scumbags on the naughty list. It happened in Florida, so everybody's now going, oh. Oh. They'll be coming down the chimney, counting down the 12 nights till Christmas. Did I say it? Six? Four, five, seven, eight, nine. With a different true crime case every night, each one naughtier than the last. This one is a doozy. So spike your eggnog. It's going to make you want to regurgitate. Because you'll need it for our true crime podcast's 12 Nightmares Before Christmas. They're coming to town December 13th through 24th. Listen to our true crime podcast on your favorite podcast apps. Well, I cannot (sighs) wait. Hit me with it. Let's hear it. Let's hear it. Dive right in. Jennifer vanished sometime in the overnight hours. Right now, there is no trace. Investigators say evidence leads them to believe that she's dead. Stick my nose back on the trail. That's all I can do. This is already gone. Already gone. Already gone. When you talk about serial killers in Detroit, My mind goes to Benjamin Atkins, who, in 1991 and 1992, murdered nearly a dozen women in Detroit. We haven't covered that story on the podcast yet, but we'll get there. Today's story is similar, but unresolved. It takes place not too far from the darker corners of Detroit where Atkins did his gruesome work. But this happened nearly 20 years earlier. These murders occurred when Atkins was just a little boy living in an orphanage. Come with me to the Cass Corridor in the 1970s, when a serial killer was stalking sex workers in one of Detroit's most notorious areas. For me, as a young child, Cass Corridor was just a place near Wayne State. My mom attended Wayne State in the late 1970s when I was a kid, and being an only child, I often went to class with her, she with her textbooks and me with my coloring books. We would park near Old Main and then walk to her class. That's when I first heard about the Cass Corridor. Of course, I got the sanitized version. 
We better be careful. It's a high crime area. Today, you can stroll cast from Little Caesars Arena to Old Main, a walk of only a mile, and the area is now referred to as Midtown. But, as we know, the 1970s were a very different time. In 1975, the UPI described Cass Corridor as a high-crime area known for sex workers, cheap bars, and the availability of drugs. It was late in 1974 that a very tall black man started raping, attacking, and beating sex workers in the Cass Corridor. Between four and seven women were attacked by this distinctive-looking perpetrator. His victims told police that he cruised Cass in a two-tone brown and beige Buick Delta 88. This predator had a routine for his attacks. He would approach a known sex worker and offer her $15 for sex, which is the equivalent of offering $90 today. When she got in his car, he would threaten her with a knife. Then take her to an isolated alley where he would beat her and sexually assault her. He liked taking mementos from his attacks, usually collecting undergarments. Each of his many victims described him as a large man, standing about six feet six inches tall with a muscular build. They also noted that he had large feet and large hands. The press ran with this description, and they dubbed him Bigfoot. And while he started with assaults, it wasn't long before he escalated to murder. His first victim was found in 1975, but she wouldn't be folded into his crimes until much later. Each of his victims was found strangled or stabbed, and they were either left nude or with their undergarments missing. And unfortunately, I can't spend as much time as I would like discussing these women. The press described them as sex workers, and that's not the word they used, and spent very little time delving into their history or their family, which is unfortunate. On February 16, 1975, the partially clad body of Valinda Brown was found in a vacant house at 113 West Euclid. Brown had been raped and strangled. At the end of April, 16-year-old Julie A. Brown was found raped, sodomized, and strangled. Just a week later, the body of 19-year-old Regina Fashi was found on the floor of a vacant house located at 4763 Lincoln. The house belonged to a relative of Regina's. The teenager was found nude, and she'd been strangled. On May 3rd, 22-year-old Naomi Dern Hall was found beaten to death at the Foster Motel, which was located at 165 Sibley. Naomi was dressed in a nightgown and found with her body sprawled across a bed. The Foster Motel is long gone. It was located in roughly the same spot as the parking garage for Little Caesars Arena. Then, there were a couple of weeks of quiet. But in June, the nude body of 22-year-old Euoria Char Dick was found stabbed to death behind the old Hudson's warehouse off Jefferson. According to the autopsy report, Euoria died of multiple stab wounds, nine stab wounds in the right chest and 13 stab wounds in the left chest involving the lungs and heart. Additionally, there was mutilation of the breasts, and wounds of the chest and abdomen indicate torture. Fingernail marks on her left wrist indicate a struggle. There was also evidence of manual strangulation. 
this woman died a brutal and violent death. In late June, Detroit police linked the murders of Regina, Naomi, and Eoria. In the press, they were referring to this killer as the Cass Strangler, the Cass Ripper, and of course, the Bigfoot Killer. On July 13th, 22-year-old Andra Lynn Coxton was found strangled to death in an abandoned restaurant at 1430 West Forest, just six blocks off Cass Avenue. She was partially clothed and a victim of sexual assault. Andra was last seen alive on June 13th around 1.30 a.m. The UPI reported that she had no history of sex work, but later news reports described her as a sex worker. Ten days later, investigators produced a composite sketch of the killer in the Cass Corridor. Police assembled the sketch using descriptions provided by women who had survived an encounter with this killer back in 1974, before he escalated to murder. Detroit police told the Associated Press, You can be assured that this case is being given the ultimate attention and ultimate manpower. More than 27 police officers were working on the case, which is a huge number of officers assigned. They said they were working tips as they came in, and the tips were coming in. Police also talked about the killer's distinctive appearance, very tall, very muscular, with large hands and large feet. Police told the UPI, you'd think a man of that description would be easy to catch, but we still don't know who he is. Detroit police said that many sex workers had been helpful coming to the station to view lineups. They said, we're not trying to dehumanize these people. They have a right to have their lives safeguarded, the same as you or I. But one sex worker told the Associated Press she didn't think police were doing all they could. She said, if this was five suburban housewives who'd been killed, it would be all over page one every day. The police would be all over the place, and they'd catch this guy. But hey, listen, sex workers are people too. It isn't right for this guy to go on killing like this and get away with it. One officer fought back against this statement, telling the press, I can tell you that the manpower is very large, and this case is being worked on around the clock. It wouldn't be handled any other way, whether the victims were prominent or lowly. We want to see this man off the streets as badly as anyone else does. Many of the women who worked the streets took special precautions, working with a friend or having male friends watch them while they were out. Some even started carrying knives. However, there was a downside to being armed on the street. One sex worker told the Associated Press, if we arm ourselves for self-protection and we get busted for soliciting, they also charge us with carrying a concealed weapon. The willingness to charge these women for trying to protect themselves made their already dangerous and difficult lives even harder. One woman told the Associated Press, Here we have a maniac running loose and the cops are concerned about making prostitution arrests. A pimp, who was described as spinning a silver-handled cane, told the Associated Press, This man's got to go. He has all the girls uptight. He's the worst thing around here in a long time. An officer told the press that the only advice she can give is to be careful, quote, 
It would be silly for me to say, don't go with strangers, because these people earn their living by doing just that. But the description is out. Anyone with the occasion to be out late at night knows the man's description, knows his method of operation. We want them to use common sense. That's all you can ask. At the end of July, two Detroit women's groups, the Women's Defense and Education Committee and the Women's Organization Moving Against Narcotics, held demonstrations at police headquarters to protest what they felt was police indifference to the Cass Corridor serial killer rapist. These groups felt that the police were not doing enough to catch the killer. One woman told the Detroit Free Press that if the killings happened in Gross Point, it would be national news. And I'm afraid that she's right. In coverage of these killings, the victims were minimized and reduced to something they did to survive. Little or no mention was made of their roles as mother, sister, daughter, or friend. Detroit police circulated a flyer about the case in the community. There was a number to call, but that number wasn't answered after hours. Eventually, a new flyer was created, this time with the number to the homicide desk, so someone at least picked up the phone. Police response to the killings was split. Some officers said they had a dozen men working the case. Others told the press that the best thing they could do was get the girls off the street. One detective dared to respond to a sex worker's criticism by saying about the endangered women. He said, they're irresponsible, unstable people, and that's the way they talk. Also working against these cases and justice for these women is that on July 30, 1975, Teamster boss Jimmy Hoffa disappeared after making a phone call in Bloomfield Hills. His disappearance would dominate the headlines for weeks, knocking the so-called Bigfoot killer off the front page. And while Hoffa disappeared from Oakland County, not Wayne County, where the murders took place, a lot of police effort and public focus shifted to his very high-profile disappearance. But the women on the streets didn't forget about the Cass Ripper. They still tried their best to both work and be cautious, but there would be one more victim. 43-year-old Dorothy R. Holmes. She'd been raped, sodomized, and strangled. The Detroit Free Press stated that Holmes was not a sex worker, but in later coverage of the case, they reported that all the women killed were sex workers, so we're not even getting even or fair coverage of these women. It makes it difficult to determine the status of these victims, but in the end, it doesn't matter. Women who lived and worked along the Cass Corridor were in danger and under attack. Her October murder would be the last known killing by the Ripper. On January 27, 1976, Carl Mayweather Jr. was caught in the act of raping a 19-year-old woman at gunpoint in River Rouge. River Rouge is a city located about 10 miles southeast of the corridor. When Mayweather was taken into custody by the River Rouge police, they called Detroit PD and said, we have a good candidate for the Cass Ripper killings. Mayweather had a criminal record in the summer of 1964, some 12 years earlier. He'd been arrested on a rape charge, pled guilty to a lesser offense, and received a sentence of probation paired with a $50 fine. So not only did he have a criminal record, but Mayweather matched the description of the Cass Ripper. He was 29 years old, 
stood six feet six inches tall and weighed 235 pounds. He also wore a size 13 and a half shoe. Detroit police later told the Detroit Free Press, This guy fits our suspect to a T. And listeners, we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Horton's new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. Answer. With this new and promising suspect in front of them, Detroit looked into Mayweather as the Ripper. They also looked at him for literally hundreds of unsolved rapes on the books. Police interviewed Carl, who got a lawyer. They were hoping he'd be helpful, but he told them he didn't want his mother to see him on the 6 o'clock news. Now, the case is in the lab, and this was long before the use of DNA as a viable option, so the lab looked at blood typing and serology. While the press was going wild thinking that the Ripper was finally in custody, police and the prosecutor were trying to preserve a very thin case against him. They tried to keep Mayweather's photo out of the paper and off the news as not to prejudice witnesses. Police also didn't want him transported wearing his size 14 snow boots, which made his feet look enormous, and those big feet fed into the Bigfoot narrative still being splashed in the press. Carl's father, Carl Mayweather Sr., told the Associated Press that his son was innocent. He said, He's got girlfriends, so many girlfriends, that he can't keep up with them. He doesn't need to go out and rape women. And listeners, we know that having a wife or a girlfriend or a series of girlfriends does not preclude a rapist from attacking women. Now, remember how the Ripper, before he started killing, liked keeping undergarments from his victims as a souvenir? When investigators searched the Mayweather home, they found more than 650 sets of used women's undergarments. But that's not all they found. They also uncovered a machete, half a dozen knives, a collection of women's jewelry, and some, quote, obscene Polaroid photographs. Carl Mayweather Jr. came from a well-off family. When investigators searched a warehouse owned by the Mayweathers, they found a motorcycle and police had long heard stories about a man who would follow sex workers from his motorcycle before attacking them. They were able to connect Mayweather with the August 1975 rape of a 21-year-old woman at her home in East Detroit. The victim said Carl followed her on his motorcycle from a bus stop, then forced her at knife point to let him inside her house. Later, he gagged her, tied her legs and hands, assaulted her, then took items from her jewelry box and lingerie drawer and stuffed them into a pillowcase. For this crime, Carl was further charged with first-degree criminal sexual conduct. Mayweather was also charged with the rape, sodomy, and armed robbery of a woman in a West Side alley that occurred in April 1975. Police would question Carl in 40 other sexual assaults. 
According to the Detroit Free Press, he was open with them about being a serial rapist. He estimated he raped at least one woman a week for the previous two years, which means he had more than 100 victims. However, he could only provide details of 16 of those rapes. After this admission, Carl was put in front of suspect lineups for several rape victims to view. On March 2, 1976, police had their lab results back, and they'd eliminated Mayweather as a suspect in three of the Cass Ripper murders. The cases they eliminated were Julie Brown, Andra Coxton, and Dorothy Holmes. They also ruled out Belinda Brown's murder because Mayweather was in jail when Belinda was found. While police could not implicate him in the murders of Regina Fauci and Ioria Chardick, he was not ruled out in either case. So police find themselves back at square one with the Ripper cases. One Detroit officer told the press he didn't think that one man was responsible for all of those killings. He had long suspected they needed to look for multiple suspects. In May of 1976, Carl Mayweather Jr. pleaded guilty but mentally ill to three rape charges and one count of armed robbery. He faced a maximum of life on each count, but was sentenced to 40 to 60 years. Mayweather would first go to a state mental facility until he was cured, then he would spend the rest of his sentence in prison. This shouldn't be the end of the story, but after Mayweather went away, so did focus on the case. July of 1976 was the bicentennial. The Oakland County child murders will soon be the focus of the Detroit media, at least until spring of 1977. The mother of Regina Fauci filed a wrongful death suit against the city, but the case would be thrown out. It would take a couple of years, but another serial killer would strike the Detroit sex worker community. In 1980, Donald Murphy, a father of five, confessed to the murder of six sex workers in Detroit. His confession came as a surprise because David Payton, a former high school basketball coach, had already admitted to some of those same killings. Donald Murphy was ultimately found guilty of two of the murders and received a life sentence in prison. In contrast, Payton managed to win an $8 million lawsuit against the city as a jury determined that his confession had been coerced by police. Murphy's victims were Jeanette Woods, whose beaten, abused body was left on the sidewalk. In June, Diane Burks was found dead in a lover's lane. She'd been a victim of strangulation. In August, Cassandra Johnson was found beaten to death. In October, the body of Betty Rembert was found in a vacant lot. Just two weeks later, the remains of Cynthia Warren were recovered. She'd been killed with an axe. And in November, the final victim was found, Cecilia Knott, stabbed and strangled. While Murphy confessed more than 40 years ago, the killings of sex workers in Detroit have not stopped. As recently as 2019, three sex workers were found dead in vacant houses on Detroit's east side. Their names were Nancy Harrison, Trevisine Ellis, and Tamara Jones. These women were murdered between March 19th and June 5th of 2019.
At the time, the Detroit mayor announced that a team would be sent out to search all vacant homes in the city for more possible victims. And during the process, these homes would be boarded up in hopes that the serial killer wouldn't be able to operate. On June 7th of 2019, an unhoused individual named D'Angelo Kenneth Martin was arrested for the murders and connected to the cases by DNA left at the scene. They were also able to link him to the February 2018 murder of Annetta Nelson. Fox 2 News Detroit reported that police also linked Martin to two other murders, Deborah Reynolds, who was found in December of 2018, and Yvonne Coburn, who was found in June of 2019. However, he was not charged in those cases, possibly due to lack of evidence. In September of 2022, Martin pleaded guilty to the second-degree murders of four women and the rape and sexual assault of 10 others. As part of his agreement, he was sentenced to 45 to 70 years in prison on each count, which would be served concurrently. As to Benjamin Atkins, who I mentioned at the top of the episode, he was responsible for the murders of 11 women in just nine short months. His preferred hunting area was the Woodward Corridor and the Highland Park area, rather than the Cass Corridor that we now refer to as Midtown. I wish I could tell you more about the women covered in this episode, because all of them deserve to have their stories heard and remembered. It would be nice if Detroit police had the manpower and funding to pull out these old case files and retest any evidence that may remain. And what struck me as I worked on this episode is the way that Cass Corridor has changed in the last 40 years. It's almost like these places didn't exist, and these women, who were all loved and important in their way, weren't there. But they were. They existed, they mattered, and hopefully, someday, they will have justice. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind the Already Gone podcast. I appreciate you listening, and please, be safe. Thank you.